0: Welcome to the FedHeads, a weekly podcast from GuideHouse. Join the FedHeads each week as Robert Shea and a celebrity guest host, talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it.
1: Welcome to another episode of FedHeads and believe it or not, this is 231. I'm joined again by my good friend and industry icon, Dave Winogren.
0: I'm delighted to be with you, 231, what a fantastic number.
1: It's our lucky number. We're joined today by a new colleague of mine, since I've just joined GuideHouse. Donna Knutson is associate director in the public health segment of GuideHouse, but comes to us after a long career in public health. And I could recite the bullets on the resume, Donna, but can you just walk us through this incredible career you've enjoyed?
2: Absolutely, and and thanks for having me. I started off trying to figure out if I wanted to be a teacher or something else. And of course, back in the olden days, uh, when my diploma was carved on a rock, I uh, ended up not being able to be hired as a teacher and uh, went into public health instead. A lot of risk reduction activity. So my very first job out of grad school was in a very small community called Zanesville, Ohio. And I started working with some colleagues at CDC through grant activities. I decided I wanted to really leave Ohio, so I started looking for jobs on the East Coast, applied to the state of Maryland, and they said I wasn't qualified, but the federal government was hiring. So I ended up uh, working for CDC, started in 1989 and left in 2018. Uh, Throughout that career, I had many positions at CDC in breast and cervical cancer prevention, in uh, environmental health and injury prevention and terrorism prevention and bioterrorism um, activities, as well as financial management activities. And so um, my entire working career has been through public health, state, local, and federal.
1: My gosh, you've seen it all. One of the things we talked about before we started was the relationship between the federal government state and local governments. Uh, Dave and I in our careers have seen that from afar, I would say. You know, I was at OMB and we thought issuing a memo would solve all kinds of problems. (laughs) You've been on the ground and so you know that not to be true. Talk about, if you will, what your observations are about how that relationship is today and what we need to do to improve it.
2: Well, all of us have had a very different life experience in the last three years after COVID. And prior to that, the big push that we had in public health at CDC was right after 9-11. And the federal government received a lot of money to help states and locals figure out how to be better prepared for bioterrorism activities. And that was when I started working in that type of, of activity. What we did is we pushed a bunch of money out and we said, here are some things that we want you all to do. And as the money started moving through the system, states became very reliant on this big bolus of funds from the federal government. Just like a lot of things, people's attention gets diverted and the monies that were there to do very important things started to dry up a little bit. So we kind of struggled along. We had laboratories built. We had um, people that were being trained in, in how to actually set things up and prepare for disasters that were happening in their communities. We did drills and exercises. We worked with the Strategic National Stockpile to make sure people understood how to distribute countermeasures if needed. Um, And then things just kind of calmed down for a while. We did obviously our job really well because there were no more uh, terrorist attacks on our soil. But then we had Katrina. And Katrina was a really big issue for the public health space because now we had to figure out how to evacuate a bunch of people put them in the same place and figure out what they needed. What we found out was that we weren't as well prepared as we should have been at the federal side. And dropping shipments of antibiotics and things like that um, to the the Superdome in, in New Orleans was not mm. what the folks needed. They they wanted things like, you know, food and and blankets, which of course were also in the the kits that we sent over there, but they also needed the things that they had every day. Not a very healthy thing, but people were looking for cigarettes. They were looking for you know, Cold beer. medications. Yeah. yeah, and and so we realized we were not prepared for that type of disaster. Fast forward a little bit, and um, now we're struggling with COVID. The issues that we have in public health between the local, the state, and the federal government can be summed up by a very smart man, uh, Larry Gostin, who's a, a public health law professor at I think he's at. George Washington, but the fact that there were 13 colonies before there was the United States means every state gets to do exactly what they want to do when it comes to protecting the public's health. A lot of times the relationship is based on goodwill. Uh, CDC has no authority to step into a state unless the state invites them. So unlike FEMA, who has broad authorities to say something bad happened over here and we're going to make sure that we put good things between the people that could get hurt and the, the thing that's hurting them, CDC doesn't have that authority. So states will invite us in. We provide guidance. It's not necessarily mandatory guidance. The states will choose to adopt, you know, recommendations from CDC or not. And, you know, closely as the rest of us, that that's what happened with COVID. Different states chose to do different things, meaning that the, the pandemic, as, as it continued to grow and continued to affect the population, not everybody was doing the same thing. So there was no Real concentrated public health effort to change the behaviors of people, um, and that actually, I think, made the pandemic last longer than it should have. Um, the other part of all of this is there's no mandatory standards on exchanging data. We're starting to get there. The federal government did make a big investment through this data modern in- modernization initiative which all of the government um, is, is working on together, but it's particularly important for somebody like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. When I worked there, we had over 126 separate surveillance systems that were independent single-use surveillance systems that showed you one part of the picture, but not the entire picture. And rarely was there enough information flowing from the, the cities to the counties, to the state, to CDC in a timely manner that you could actually make public health decisions about it. So I think that is the biggest problem that we have right now is, is trying to standardize all of this information, create better pipes for it all to come up faster, do better modeling, you know, make sure that the monies that it takes to keep those things in, in the 50 states, meaning the equipment, the software, the upkeep, the tail end of those initial investments, that's gonna be the big struggle in the next 10 years is making sure all of that works so that we do have actionable information and that people have confidence that the recommendations that they're getting are actually gonna help them in the long run.
1: Well, she's talking your language today.
0: Yeah, so I'll profess that I'm a little bit of an organizational dynamic geek here. And so, you know, as you look at these disconnects between federal, state, local organizations, would you describe them more as technological challenges or cultural change people kinds of challenges? Like what would be the set of things that you'd love to see progress get made on?
2: exactly both of those things. I mean, technology for sure. Remember, there are, you know, the states that have and the states that have not. And uh, one of my first jobs when I was with CDC was I was assigned to the state of uh, Wisconsin. And I actually got to travel to all 125 counties in the state and teach the public health nurses how to use a mouse on their computer. And this was 30 years ago. And that was when things were just starting. So there was no ability to actually retrieve data at the county level, unless somebody had it you know, stored on a piece of paper in their desk. So the technology obviously has to come a long way, um, but then there also has to be a lot more agreement on what's important information, how do you send it to the right place, how do you look at it in a way that is inclusive, both for you know the racial equality, as well as small states, big states, rural, city, urban. Some of that information is just not available right now. So getting people to agree that these are the most important things to collect, these are the best ways to collect them, and that collectively we can then go ahead and make decisions about what to do. All of that is missing. And and the whole cultural change. One of my career positions was I was the executive director for this organization called the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists. And that is every state's epidemiologist belongs to this organization. There is a lot of ownership in people that collect data and look at it and write papers about it and do important information gathering. But it's very personal to them. So at some level, we have to get the culture to change to, it's not my data, it's the data. It's not, you know, my information that I can tell you about. It's the information that belongs to everybody that needs to be used for greater good. And I think that's going to be a cultural change for CDC.
1: You know, Dave is chair of the National Academy of Public Administration and hosts a quarterly grants management symposium. And a lot of what we hear in that forum is that the government creates a lot of its own problems by Mm -hmm. disparate funding streams, having sometimes overlapping, sometimes completely duplicative, often very different reporting requirements um, associated with those grants and therefore the opportunity to blend those funding streams, if they have a similar purpose, to co- coordinate across jurisdictions. It it creates a lot of barriers to the kind of collaboration that I think you're talking about we need
2: right. at
1: the state and local level.
2: Well, my first job with CDC, I was with um, the Maryland State Health Department. And I walked in with my Wang laptop and sat down, looked at my Amber screen, and uh, I was the only one in the entire um, community health activity i can't remember exactly what it was called that had a modem um nobody else even had a modem to actually contact the outside world right so that type of collaboration is very important as well as as you said if i if i received a grant from the federal government and it was for risk reduction activities i did use that money to buy a risk reduction computer it was (laughs) not used by anybody else it couldn't you couldn't store an immunization record on there you you know not because It wasn't possible, but those were some of the grants management rules, and that type of silo activity still exists and still happens uh, in most of the local and state health departments, if not even the federal side.
0: So, uh, so you had a Wang laptop. I had a Wang mini computer. I couldn't have carried it with me anywhere, but uh,
1: I had a portable compact that, that was see, about <laughs> half the size of this table. So mm-hmm. I feel like
0: we're kindred spirits a little and, bit. And now we've told the whole podcast audience our age. And so, <laughs> so you know, you have had a really unique career. You've looked at things from the state/local level. You've looked at things at the national level. You've looked at things from the nonprofit lens, and now for the for-profit lens. What are like the biggest differences that you've seen in how healthcare solutions get delivered at these different levels of organizations? Yeah.
2: It's interesting because we're having a meeting on Friday, and, and one of the topics I'm asking that we talk about is, how do you balance profit and passion? Because the the public health world and the people that I've been fortunate enough to work with in the last you know 30 years or so, 35 years, they're there for a reason. And they are there to make sure that, that they are able to affect good change in, in the world. And sometimes as now on the for-profit side, as a consultant, I can go in and of course, we all know that we, as consultants, we know the exact thing that the client needs to have, right? And right. it's going to be the best solution. And you can and buy
1: buzzwords by the pound.
2: Yes. Right. <laughs> once you do this one thing, all your problems will be solved. But often our recommendations aren't taken, and that that to me is a real struggle as a personally because I'm like, come on, I have this experience, I know this will work, um, but you're not taking my recommendation. So now, what are we going to do? So I think that's, that's one of the biggest differences besides the buzzwords, um, just trying to balance that um, passion with, with, you know, for-profit activities.
1: So reflecting on your long career, how would you grade the trajectory of the public health ecosystem?
2: Um, I've seen a lot of advances in the last five years, but, you know, prior to that, we're, we're still sitting around the tables in some cases talking about the same problem. And I think that the industry partnership with the, the federal government is definitely needed. Um, and that, again, gets into that tension of, are you doing this because you've got that passion to make things different? Or are you doing this because there's money on the table and it's the, it's easy for us to do this? Um, collaboration among federal agencies. DOD has a ton of information that would be helpful to use when it comes to working with you know the, the public health community, we are making some of those inroads. We're looking, we're able to now, because of the federal data strategy, you know, we can look at some of that information that is sitting within other other federal agencies and bring that to bear on some of the things that we're doing. So I think we're getting there, but there's a lot of work to be done. And for me, what, what I'm worried about is the s- sustainability. You know, if over reliance on federal funds at the public health level at the state, and if the federal funds do dry up, The state's progress will be halted and trying to figure out how to sustain that money flow, as well as the good ideas and the modeling and the upscaling of the workforce and all of the things that have to happen, those are kind of the things that really have to have continued focus for the next I would say 10 to 15 years.
0: When you go to work for an outstanding company like GuideHouse, your eyes get open about what, what all the opportunities are from the broad base of clients that a company like GuideHouse has. As you look back now to your colleagues who are still in government, now that you've spent this time in industry, what's one piece of advice you would offer them?
2: My friends that are still in government, you know, just be open and don't look at everybody as the enemy. And please, for everybody doesn't matter if you're on the for-profit side or the federal side or the government side or the state side, don't be the smartest person in the room. You know, sit back and listen to other people and figure out, you know, is there a way that we can work together to get more information on the table to, again, make things work for people rather than make more barriers for, for things to get done?
1: Well, Donna, I'm so proud to be working with you at GuideHouse. And more importantly, thank you for your long public service and your contribution to public health. It's You're been welcome. great, great talking with you.
2: Have me back sometime. We can talk again. We will. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you guys.
1: Hey, Donna, thank you very much.
2: Thanks for listening to the podcast, a weekly podcast
1: brought to you by GuideHouse.